0: Our thanks to Richard for filling in during uh, Chris's absence in China. Steve Havelman, too. It's been a long time since we've seen him up here. Thanks, Steve. Um, because Chris is away, uh, he made sure he had the bulletins uh, made up um, before his departure. And so if you are an avid note-taker, you'll notice that there uh, aren't too many sermon notes in there. All I was able to come up with before Chris left was the sermon title and text. So um, if you're going to struggle with that, then just focus in here for a minute. Let me give you three headings for you avid note-takers. I almost said rabid note-takers, but avid note-takers. We'll go with that. Uh, Component number one, component number two, component number three. You just jot those down, leave a little space in between. Uh, Three coat hangers that we're going to hang our thoughts on uh, this day, and I think those three will, will serve you well. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to, to Mark chapter 1. Uh, in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, we read uh, a great deal concerning a disease called leprosy. Odd, uh, strange for modern man. Uh, leprosy, uh, to the best of my knowledge, has all but been eradicated in our day. I do remember occasion. Almost 20 years ago, Allison and I were in the country of Angola in southwest Africa, and we were in the eastern part of the country visiting a mission station, which was a thrill in and of itself because Angola at one time had hundreds of mission stations, but very few survived the Civil War. But this one in a place called Beulah had survived. We were visiting, and attached to this old mission station was a medical work and was a leper colony. And there were maybe a half dozen lepers residing in this colony near this mission station. That was the first and that was the last uh, experience I've had with leprosy. And I'm sure if we were to take a survey, there would be very few. We could probably count on one hand the people here today who have had any comings and goings with this disease. It's all but gone, all but eradicated. But it looms large in Scripture. Uh, We read of it in the Old Testament. We read of it again in the New Testament. Why? Why is there such an emphasis on, on leprosy? Well, let me sum it up for you. I try to sum it up for you in one statement. It is as follows. As leprosy destroys the beauty and perfection of the body, so sin destroys the beauty and perfection of the soul. And so leprosy serves a function in Scripture. It's symbolic. It's representative. It's a, it's a picture. It is a, it is a gruesome picture of sin. That as leprosy, this disease that was so severe back in Bible times, destroyed the perfection and beauty of the body. So too, sin destroys the beauty and perfection of the soul. Let me give you a description of leprosy. It's not from my pen, but from uh, that of a preacher of old. He says, leprosy begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin loses its color. It becomes thick, glossy, and scaly. Due to poor blood supply, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers. The skin around the eyes and the ears begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face actually begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers and toes drop off. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see that the afflicted person is a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can feel it. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. The disease-producing agent frequently attacks the larynx. As a result, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality. You now know, you now not only see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. It's grotesque. That's putting it mildly. And yet scripture is purposeful in its employment, its use of leprosy. Again, let me repeat it. As leprosy destroys the beauty and perfection of the body, so sin destroys the beauty and perfection of the soul. You see, leprosy consumes Uh, Leprosy embraces the entire body, and eventually leprosy destroys. It kills. Uh, How sin is like that. Uh, Sin embraces the soul. Sin corrupts the soul. Sin sways every faculty. Uh, Sin takes hold of the mind, the understanding, the intellect whereby we're incapable of of perceiving and understanding spiritual realities. We're incapable of understanding spiritual truth. We do not see things in their true light. That is sin's effect upon the mind. And equally true, sin grips the heart. It embraces the affections whereby we hate what we ought to love. And we love what we ought to hate. And sin imprisons the will whereby we choose in accordance with a darkened mind, and we choose in accordance with a hardened heart. And in that state of sin, we are incapable of doing anything pleasing in God's sight. Now that's known, That's known incidentally, as the doctrine of total depravity. It's known as the doctrine of radical depravity. When we speak of total depravity, we're not speaking of the sins we commit, things we do or we do not do. That's not what we're primarily concerned about. We are concerned about a condition of the soul, the privation of God, alienation from the life of God, whereby the mind is darkened, incapable of understanding spiritual truth. The heart is hardened, incapable of loving spiritual truth. And therefore the will is enslaved and will never choose spiritual truth. Uh, That is the state of every individual. Now, I know most of you know that what what I've just said is not very popular in our day. uh, Certainly not very popular in our society. Sadly, not even not even very popular among many many evangelicals. There are, I suppose, when we when we step back and we think about it, um, as people try to explain the human condition, as they try to explain human behavior. As they try to account for what we can only describe as deviant behavior, they have basically fallen into one of two schools of thought. And so over here we have the the nurture argument. And according to the nurture school of thought, um, the conclusion is this. We behave the way we do because of our environment. Now, when I say environment, I don't mean the trees, the bushes, the armadillo, the squirrel, the deer. I'm not talking about our physical environment. I'm referring to our social environment, that we behave the way we do because of our environment. And so my father, um, hypothetically speaking, abandoned me when I was a child. That is painful. That is sinful. That is regrettable. Um, My mother was dominant. Or my mother extreme. My mother was completely neglectful. Um, The schools that I went to were terrible schools. Quality, terrible teachers. Curriculum, terrible. The neighborhood I grew up in, poverty stricken. Country I grew up in, backwater country. Uh, See, I'm, I'm I'm not really responsible for my behavior. I'm not really accountable for my actions. I behave the way I do because of my environment. My social environment explains who I am. That's one school of thought, the nurture argument. That's how a lot of people explain our behavior. The other school of thought is the nature argument, not the nurture argument, the nature argument. And so we don't look so much as at our social environment, but we look at our genetic makeup. Uh, we account for deviant behavior and attribute it to some sort of genetic malfunction. And so sexual deviation, whatever might fall under that umbrella, habitual lying, fits of rage and anger, violence, substance abuse. Again, these things aren't really my fault. It's because I am wired that way. There's some sort of genetic defect uh, residing within me. And so this... In our society, our country, as we look out at the world around us, and sadly, even as we look at much of the prevailing thinking within the church, these are the way people think. And they think that way for one reason. It is this. You see, both absolve the individual of responsibility. Both the nurture argument and the nature argument, the final analysis, the final conclusion is what? I'm not responsible. It's not my fault. It was the way I was raised, or it is the way I am genetically, or the word people like to throw around, naturally. It is the way I was born. And so it absolves the individual of all responsibility. That is the prevalent view today. And yet scripture says something entirely different, doesn't it? Uh, Scripture points us in a a completely different direction. Scripture affirms what theologians call what they have labeled the doctrine of total depravity or the doctrine of radical depravity. Yes, nurture and nature might exasperate the problem. But nurture and nature are not the problem. Do you know what your problem is, friend? And do you know what my problem is? We're the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is the doctrine of Radical depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. Leprosy in scripture gives us a picture of this. That as leprosy destroys the beauty and perfection of the body, so too sin destroys the beauty and perfection of the soul. It is radical. And because it is radical, it requires an equally radical remedy. The doctrine of God's sovereign grace. We need a radical solution. We need a radical answer to deal with a radical problem. That sin grips us to such an extent, sin is so pervasive, so intertwined with our being, that it corrupts every thought, it corrupts every feeling, emotion, it corrupts every desire, every word. Every deed. Now, the only solution, the only remedy, the only answer is God's sovereign grace. Now, that's quite the introduction, but that's actually our conclusion where we're going to end up this morning. Because in our text in Mark chapter 1, Mark points us to this encounter between two individuals, the Lord and the leper. And we're going to see that in that encounter, we have mirrored we have mirrored the relationship between the Lord and a sinner. So that's where we're going to end up. How are we going to get there? By turning to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to begin in the first verse. We went over this last Sunday. Let me give you a brief review before we get into today's text. Mark chapter 1, the very first verse. He declares the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No, hey, how are you? No peace and grace from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no greeting here that is similar to Paul's greetings. There's no grand introduction. He doesn't ease into things. He simply states right at the outset what his book is about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How do we know Jesus Christ is the Son of God? It was announced by the Baptist, verses 2 through 8. It was confirmed by the Father. Verses 9 through 11, it was tested by the devil. Verses 12 and 13. Now, this is interesting. We dare not miss it. Between the 13th verse and the 14th verse, a year passes. We have this interval in which the Lord Jesus is ministering primarily in, a, in an area, a region known as Judea. Mark doesn't draw on any of that material. Mark doesn't draw from, from, that, from that section of Christ's ministry Mark has his own purpose. He's zoning in on his purpose, which will ultimately culminate in the cross. And so a year has passed before he picks up the narrative again. And he begins writing in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now here's the place to start. It's with a question. What is Mark doing here? Great question. Always ask that question as you read scripture. What is the author's intent here? So Mark is the author of this book. What is he trying to accomplish? Obviously, under the inspiration, the direction of the Spirit of God, what is it he is seeking to convey in these verses? He is introducing us, in a nutshell, he is introducing us to Christ's ministry. And so, yes, the Baptist announced Christ's coming, announced that Jesus is the Son of God. The Father confirmed it at His baptism. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The devil tested it in the wilderness. Okay? We know Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He now embarks on His public ministry. And so now Mark is trying to convey to us, help us to understand what is it Christ does in His ministry. And what He gives us, what He presents to us in these verses are the three essential components of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these three are going to constitute the book's backbone. So if you think of this book as having a backbone, these three components of Christ's ministry run through the entire book. Everything that is done, everything that is said, is to be interpreted and understood in the light of these three components of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the first, component number one, in verses 14 and 15. Christ's gospel proclaimed. There's component number one. It runs through the entire book. Christ's gospel proclaimed, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Why? What's he doing? Proclaiming the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? He gives it to us, a synopsis, anyway, in the 15th verse, consists of three messages. Number one, the time is fulfilled. Here's the good news. Here's the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. What time is he talking about? What is he referring to? He's referring to the entire Old Testament. He's going all the way back to creation. He's going all the way back to the fall. He's going all the way back to God's first original promise concerning the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That promise developed later in God's covenant with Abraham, developed later in God's covenant with David. See, the entire Old Testament is moving. It is not static. It is a movement, moving forward hurling forward, creating this sense of expectation in his readers. Someone is coming. A Messiah is coming. A Savior is coming. A Redeemer is coming. God has promised it. God has been working through the centuries, preparing for it, laying the groundwork. Now the Lord Jesus bursts on the scenes, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. All that God foretold through the prophets. That entire Old Testament prophetic movement going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The fulfillment is here. There's a second message. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the kingdom of God. It's God's rule. And with his first advent, his coming, the Lord Jesus Christ begins. He establishes. He inaugurates the kingdom of God. Right now it is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom which consists of all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is manifested primarily on earth through the church, established at Christ's first advent. It will be consummated, completed, perfected when? At Christ's second advent. Uh, There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells supreme. Uh, There will be a restored paradise. There will be a glorified people at the center of whom Christ will dwell for all eternity. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom inaugurated with Christ's first advent. And praise God, in great expectation and hope, a kingdom consummated with the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a third message, isn't there? Okay, look to the past. The time is fulfilled. Look to the future. The kingdom of God is at hand. Look to the present sinner. Here's what God demands of you. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. It's very simple. Turn away from those things that God hates and turn to those things that God loves and believe the good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That is Christ's gospel proclaimed. But before we move on, look at something interesting. Ahead in the chapter, the 38th verse. Look just for a moment at what we read there. And he, that is the Lord Jesus, said to them, so those disciples whom he's already called, let us go on to the next towns, that I may heal there also. No. That I may cast out demons there also. No. That I might minister to widows and orphans. No, that I might feed the poor. No, that I might redeem culture. No, that I might transform society. No, that I might preach. Understand this, friend. It's essential. It's extremely important. The Lord Jesus Christ, his public ministry culminates in the cross. Prior to the cross, his ministry is summed up in this one activity, the preaching and proclamation Of the gospel. We hear so much today about being missional. This is a whole movement within evangelicalism. We need to be missional, redeeming the culture, transforming the culture. Don't misunderstand me. I believe we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That means we, as Christians, as individuals, as families, even as a local church, should engage in ministering to those who are destitute. We should engage in renewing the inner city. We should engage in ministering to widows and orphans. Amen. We most certainly should because Christ commands us we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But please understand, friends, they do not constitute the church's mission. The church's mission is very straightforward. We are a set-apart people of God called to worship and magnify and glorify God. We are a set-apart people who are to act and serve as the pillar and buttress of the truth. And we are a set-apart and called people to proclaim the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was what Lord Jesus was all about. All of these other things that he engages in, in particular healing and casting out demons, which we'll get to in just a moment, they were subservient to, second place to his primary principal purpose, which was what? To preach. Preach what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The second component. Christ's disciples appointed. We have it in verses 16 through 20. We have four men mentioned, two sets of brothers. Simon, we know him better as Peter. Simon and Andrew. And then a second set of brothers in verse 19, James and John. Focus in key verse, verse 17. And here the Lord Jesus gives to these four a command and a promise. The command, very simple, follow me. What does that mean for Simon and Andrew? It means they leave their livelihood. They leave that fishing industry and they begin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me to James and John. What does it mean to them? They leave their father. They leave their family. And so here we have two brothers leaving their livelihood. We have another set of brothers leaving their family. Why? Because Christ has commanded them to follow him. And that command is followed with a promise. I'm going to make you something. I'm going to turn you into something. I will make you become fishers of men. And so the Lord Jesus goes out principally and primarily to preach. And now he promises these four that what he is calling them to, what he is inviting them to participate in, is an extension of his principal ministry, the preaching and proclamation of the good news. And what we're going to see throughout the gospel of Mark is that these disciples, they just kind of appear. You've read it. You know the story. They just appear time and time again, don't they? And through their example, and through Christ's teaching them and shaping them and molding them, what is he teaching us? The nature of true discipleship. The nature of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see their unrivaled commitment, don't we? Their livelihood second place. Even in their family, second place. A willingness to forego all, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. One author has written the following commitment. This is important. Commitment is a definite, well-considered act in which a person turns his or her life over to the Lord so that he can do whatever he wants with it. It is exchanging our will for God's will. It is giving up our rag rights and acknowledging his throne rights. It is abandoning all for the one who abandoned all for us. So if you've got the first two components, Christ's gospel proclaimed, verses 14 and 50, Christ's disciples appointed, verses 16 and 20, these are two of the three that constitute this book's backbone. They appear time and time again throughout this book. We we'll come now to the third component, it begins in verse twenty-one, all the way through as far as we read verse forty-five. Christ's authority manifested. Christ's authority manifested. We have that word authority for the first time in the book in verse twenty-two. And it is the third component that makes up the book's backbone. It comes up time and time again, right through to Mark chapter 16, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is indeed the Son of God. He is indeed precisely who He claims to be, proven, demonstrated, magnified through the exercise of His authority. Key verse. Look at 30, verse 34. He healed many who were sick, with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And so these verses, they they furnish us with two evidences, two revelations, two manifestations of the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is this. He has authority over diseases. Now you move backwards from verse 34. I know it's a little tricky, but Mark... This is really a summation here in verse thirty-four. You move backwards, and in verse twenty-one through to verse twenty-eight, he gives us an example of Christ doing what—healing, uh, healing diseases. That uh, verse, sorry, verse twenty-nine through verse thirty-one, he gives us an example of Christ healing diseases. Simon's mother-in-law; she's at home, she's sick with a fever, and the Lord Jesus, we read in verse thirty-one, took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever. Left her. So here's an example, here's an illustration, here's proof that the Lord Jesus has authority over diseases. But there's a second manifestation, isn't there? He casts out many demons, and so you move further back, 21 through 28, and he furnishes us with, a, with an example. He's in the city of Capernaum, and a man possessed with an evil spirit approaches this evil spirit. This demon cries out, verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And look at Christ's authority in the 25th verse. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. So there you have it, verse 21 through 28, an example of Christ exercising authority over demons. And then in verse 29 through to verse 31, 32, Christ giving an example, Mark giving an example of Christ exercising authority over diseases. And then in verse 34, he sums it up. And he, that is Christ, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And so he wants to convey to his readers, he wants to convey to us That this one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is one who possesses unrivaled authority. Here are two examples of his authority. He heals various diseases and he casts out, he expels demons. So he has authority over diseases. He has authority over demons. Why is that significant? Well, as the Lord Jesus manifests throughout this gospel account, his authority over disease he is demonstrating that he has the authority to undo the effects of the fall. That's key. That's crucial. And throughout this gospel account, as the Lord Jesus casts out these demons with a mere word, he is demonstrating beyond any shadow of a doubt that he has authority to undo the works of the devil. And so he is pointing us all the way back to the fall, He is pointing us all the way back to Adam's rebellion. And he is drawing out two momentous consequences of Adam's fall into sin. The first, the negative effects and consequences of sin as seen in disease. And secondly, the works of the devil himself as seen in his minions, these demons. Now the Son of God walks the earth. The Son of God embarks on his public ministry. And the Son of God exercises absolute, unrivaled authority over both. Demonstrating that he alone has authority to undo the effects of the fall. And that he alone has authority to undo the works of the devil. And both are a type of what? Precisely what he is going to accomplish on behalf of his people, his sheep, his church, his flock at Calvary's cross. Where he will undo, as he sheds his blood, bearing the wrath of Almighty God, he will undo for his people. Effects affects the fall, and he will undo the very works of the devil. His authority is supreme. His authority is unrivaled. His authority is absolute. Now, in verse 40, Mark, he's still harping on the same theme here, but he wants to get close and personal. And so he brings in, he brings in another example of Christ's healing power of his authority. Matthew gives us this. I think it's Matthew chapter 5. Luke records this. I think it's Luke chapter 5. This wonderful miracle, this encounter between the Lord and the leper. Let me read again for you just verses 40 through 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will. Be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now focus here with your minds. Just sort of place over here, my left, your right, uh, the leper. And now over here, if that's your right, your left, wherever, the Lord. You've got these two in this personal encounter, the leper and the Lord. And understand that in the 40th verse, Mark tells us that the leper does three things. And then in verse 41, he tells us that the Lord does three things. Notice them with me. Beginning with the leper. Three things. Number one, a leper came to him. Big deal. Let's move on. No. Huge deal. Luke, as he records this this event, this this encounter between the leper and the Lord, he he adds a couple of, of, of very significant details. The first is this. He tells us that the leper is actually full of leprosy. The leper is Covered with leprosy. Meaning what? He has borne this ailment for years. This isn't something he contracted a few hours, a few weeks, a few months before. This is something that has plagued him for years. This means he has been ostracized by society. He has been cut off from his family. And he has simply been sitting there watching the gradual decay of his physical being, his body, as this disease consumes him little by little. He's aware of his condition. Luke also tells us, this is very significant, that this miracle takes place in a city. What is this leper doing in a city?
1: He has no business
0: being in a city. As a matter of fact, the law forbids him from entering any populated area There were designated areas where lepers had to live, where they had to remain, where they had to abide, because fear fear gripped people. They were afraid of contracting the disease. But here is this leper who is aware of his condition, burdened with it. Here is this leper who also has an inkling of conviction that Christ is able to help him. And he throws caution to the wind enters into this city, you can picture him running from alleyway to alleyway, public square to public square, until he finally finds he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, secondly, what he does. He kneels before him. A sign of humility, isn't it? Again, I think it's Luke who tells us, maybe it's Matthew, that he actually falls on his face. And so this leper is prostrate on the ground, groveling on the ground at the feet of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, his conviction is evident, isn't it? Uh, we, we, don't know, we don't know what he grasps concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Evidently, news had filtered into the leper colony. And, and he knew something of Christ's teaching. He knew something of the miracles Christ had performed. He knew something of his power to cast out demons. And I don't know if the penny had fully dropped. But the penny is certainly on the way down. Something, a light is beginning to go on. And he's beginning to understand this is no mere man. This is no mere mortal. And so full of an awareness of his condition, overcome with conviction, he prostrates himself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the third thing he does. He speaks. It's a conditional clause made up of two phrases. If you will, right at the end of verse 40, there it is. If you will, you can make me clean. Notice the first phrase. If you will, no, uh, I'll pay you if you do this. Um, no, well, you know, you really should do this for me. I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, father, husband, had a pretty good livelihood going, and this, this affliction just, you know, has ruined my life. Uh, you owe me. I, I get, I get a hint of the truth here as to who you really are, And I think you owe me as your your creature to do something for me. No, from the leper's vantage point, there's no sense of I can pay for this or I can earn this. Neither is there any sense of, of Christ owes me this. You see, the leper understands. He's appealing to grace. He's appealing to mercy. You don't owe me this. As a matter of fact, you don't owe me anything. The first words out of his mouth are these. If... You will. It's an appeal to what? It's an appeal to sovereign grace. It is appeal to sovereign mercy. That he knows he has no leg to stand on. There he is groveling before the Lord. And he isn't making any arguments. He isn't defending himself. He isn't presenting his case. He knows that if Christ is going to help him, it will be for one reason, one reason alone, it will be grace. And it will be Mercy notice the second phrase. You can, if you will, I'm appealing to your grace, if you will. Here's what else I know. You can make me clean. Ability is not an issue here, right? This isn't, we don't have a, it's not a 50-50 thing here. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. If my faith is strong enough, maybe I can make you do it somehow. There's nothing like that going on here. He knows who he is, if you will. If you choose to bestow grace and mercy on me, you can. There is nothing that can stop you. There is no impediment. There is no obstacle. I understand that you have unrivaled, unchallenged, absolute power and authority. You can make me clean. Now the Lord, verse 41, interestingly enough, He does three things. Firstly, 41st verse, He is moved with, Pity. John Calvin said pity is the pain we feel at someone else's sorrow. So Christ looks on this creature. Christ looks on this man. Christ looks on his desperate situation. And Christ is moved with pity. Christ is moved with compassion. As he sees the ravages of sin in this diseased man. Moved, overcome with pity. And notice the second thing he does, and we should stand aghast at this. He stretched out his hand and touched him. I like to go off on tangents at times, you know that. Here's a tangent I was on this past week thinking over this. When was the last time someone touched this man? That's a good question. If he is full of leprosy, that means he has been segregated, ostracized, cut off for years. When was the last time someone touched this man? Remember, this this miracle doesn't happen in isolation. We're in a city. There are people all around. You can imagine them just holding back, holding back, watching what's going on here, listening to the leper's plea. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And how the eyes must have bulged and the chins must have dropped when all of a sudden the Lord Jesus Christ stretches out his hand and he touches the leper. See, here's the thing, here's the thing. What should have rendered the Lord Jesus unclean, contact. What should have rendered the Lord Jesus unclean renders the leper clean, the touch. And then Christ speaks, and it's beautiful. His words directly parallel the leper's words. If you've forgotten already, here they are. If you will, you can make me clean. Christ's response paralleling. The leper's statement, we're at the end of verse 41, I will. If you will, I will. In other words, you've got it right. Payment, what a silly thought. Obligation, you would have to be nuts to think that. I'm not obliged to do anything for you. I will. I will manifest my grace. I will manifest my mercy. And then what's the second thing he says? Touching him. Paralleling again the leper's words. You can make me clean. Here it is. Authority. Be clean. And the reaction, the response, what happens? Verse 42. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. It doesn't stop there. The Lord Jesus commands the man to uh, keep quiet. Good luck with that. He wasn't about to keep quiet. He tells him to keep quiet and to hurry. And to go and show himself to the, the priest. Why? As a witness to that. What's he talking about? You go back to the book of Leviticus, chapters 13, 14. There we read all about leprosy. And there we read about all the rules and regulations surrounding those who contracted leprosy. And there we also read of the rare incident in which someone was healed of leprosy and their reintegration into society and the sacrifices that had to be offered and the washings they had to undergo and all this sort of thing. And so the Lord Jesus wants him to go straight to the priest. The Lord Jesus wants him to go to the religious leaders. Why? As a witness to them. Why? He wants them to understand he has been in contact with this leper. He wants them to understand he has touched this leper. He wants them to understand that contact has not rendered him unclean. Rather, contact has rendered the leper clean. Why? Because, you see, the Lord Jesus is a fulfillment of the law. The Lord Jesus' fulfillment of all those cleanliness and uncleanliness laws in the Old Testament. You see, as the soul is riddled with sin, overcome with sin, it is the Lord Jesus Christ in his contact with humanity and in his contact with people who has the power, alone has the power, to render us clean. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to put yourself in the leper's shoes. And I want you to remember that statement that I began with. Uh, as leprosy uh, destroys the beauty and perfection of the body, so too sin destroys the beauty and perfection of the soul. And understand, that is your predicament. The natural man, carnal man by birth, that is our predicament. We are covered with leprosy. We are riddled with the depravity of our nature. We are riddled With sin? And let me ask you three questions. Do you struggle with the burden of your sin? Do I struggle with the burden of my sin? Do I understand who I am in the sight of a holy God? Am I aware, like the leper, of my condition? And am I full of conviction that God alone can help? Second question is this. Are you looking to the Lord Jesus Christ alone? That leper, I can just—I picture him, maybe it's an overactive imagination, but I can just picture him entering that city, pushing people out of his way, yelling unclean, unclean as he goes. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? He's looking for one man, one man alone, who he knows can help him and remedy his condition. Are you looking to the Lord Jesus Christ? He is altogether lovely. Yet he bore the filth of our sin in order to make us lovely in God's sight. The third question is this. Are you resting in God's sovereign grace? There is no stain too deep. There is no blemish too ugly. And there is no sin too grievous. Why? If you will, you can make me. Bow with me and pray as we seek the Lord's blessing upon his word this day. Our Father, we praise you. We praise you for uh, the wonder of creation and the revelation of your power and wisdom. More so, even more so, our Father, we praise you for the wonderful plan of redemption, salvation, and the revelation of... Of your power and wisdom, yes, and of your abounding loving kindness, your grace and mercy. Uh, We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there is forgiveness. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is cleansing. Uh, We remember the words of the hymn writer, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we thank you for your Son. praise you for what you have accomplished in him on behalf of sinners. We pray that you would take your word as it has been declared this day and plant it deep within. And we pray that it would bear much fruit for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.